Capital and Interest My object in this treatise is to examine into the real nature of the interest of capital, for the purpose of proving that it is lawful, and explaining why it should be perpetual. This may appear singular, and yet, I confess, I am more afraid of being too plain than too obscure. I am afraid I may weary the reader by a series of mere truisms, but it is no easy matter to avoid this danger, when the facts with which we have to deal are known to everyone by personal, familiar, and daily experience. But then, you will say, what is the use of this treatise? Why explain what everybody knows? But, although this problem appears at first sight so very simple, there is more in it than you might suppose. I shall endeavor to prove this by an example. Maunder lends an instrument of labor today, which will be entirely destroyed in a week. Yet the capital will not produce the less interest to Maunder or his heirs through all eternity. Reader, can you honestly say that you understand the reason of this? It would be a waste of time to seek any satisfactory explanation from the writings of economists. They have not thrown much light upon the reasons of the existence of interest. For this, they are not to be blamed, for at the time they wrote, its lawfulness was not called in question. Now, however, times are altered. The case is different. Men, who consider themselves to be in advance of their age, have organized an active crusade against capital and interest. It is the productiveness of capital which they are attacking, not certain abuses in the administration of it, but the principle itself. A journal has been established to serve as a vehicle for this crusade. It is conducted by M. Proudhon, and has, it is said, an immense circulation. The first number of this periodical contains the electoral manifesto of the people. Here we read, the productiveness of capital, which is condemned by Christianity under the name of usury, is the true cause of misery, the true principle of destitution, the eternal obstacle to the establishment of the Republic. Another journal, La Rouge Populaire, after having said some excellent things on labor, adds, but, above all, labor ought to be free. That is, it ought to be organized in such a manner that moneylenders and patrons, or masters, should not be paid for this liberty of labor, this right of labor, which is raised to so high a price by the traffickers of men. The only thought that I notice here is that expressed by the words in italics, which imply a denial of the right to interest. The remainder of the article explains it. It is thus that the democratic socialist, Thore, expresses himself. The revolution will always have to be recommenced, so long as we occupy ourselves with consequences only, without having the logic or the courage to attack the principle itself. This principle is capital, false property, interest, and usury, which, by the old regime, is made to weigh upon labor. Ever since the aristocrats invented the incredible fiction 
that capital possesses the power of reproducing itself, the workers have been at the mercy of the idle. At the end of a year, will you find an additional crown in a bag of 100 shillings? At the end of 14 years, will your shillings have doubled in your bag? Will a work of industry or of skill produce another at the end of 14 years? Let us begin then by demolishing this fatal fiction. I have quoted the above merely for the sake of establishing the fact that many persons consider the productiveness of capital a false, a fatal, and an iniquitous principle. But quotations are superfluous. It is well known that the people attribute their sufferings to what they call the trafficking in man by man. In fact, the phrase, tyranny of capital, has become proverbial. I believe there is not a man in the world who is aware of the whole importance of this question. Is the interest of capital natural, just, and lawful, and is useful to the payer as to the receiver? You answer no. I answer yes. Then we differ entirely. But it is of the utmost importance to discover which of us is in the right. Otherwise, we shall incur the danger of making a false solution of the question a matter of opinion. If the error is on my side, however, the evil would not be so great. It must be inferred that I know nothing about the true interests of the masses, or the march of human progress, and that all my arguments are but as so many grains of sand, by which the car of the revolution will certainly not be arrested. But if, on the contrary, M.M. Proudhon and Thoré are deceiving themselves, it follows that they are leading the people astray, that they are showing them the evil where it does not exist, and thus giving a false direction to their ideas, to their antipathies, to their dislikes, and to their attacks. It follows that the misguided people are rushing into a horrible and absurd struggle, in which victory would be more fatal than defeat, since, according to this supposition, the result would be the realization of universal evils, the destruction of every means of emancipation, the consummation of its own misery. This is just what M. Proudhon has acknowledged with perfect good faith. The foundation stone, he told me, of my system is the gratuitousness of credit. If I am mistaken in this, socialism is a vain dream. I add, it is a dream, in which the people are tearing themselves to pieces. Will it, therefore, be a cause for surprise, if, when they awake, they find themselves mangled and bleeding? Such a danger as this is enough to justify me fully, if, in the course of the discussion, I allow myself to be led into some trivialities and some prolixity. Capital and Interest I address this treatise to the workmen of Paris, more especially to those who have enrolled themselves under the banner of socialist democracy. I proceed to consider these two questions. First, is it consistent with the nature of things and with justice that capital should produce interest? Second, 
is it consistent with the nature of things and with justice that the interest of capital should be perpetual? The working men of Paris will certainly acknowledge that a more important subject could not be discussed. Since the world began, it has been allowed, at least in part, that capital ought to produce interest. But latterly, it has been affirmed that herein lies the very social error which is the cause of pauperism and inequality. It is therefore very essential to know now on what ground we stand. For if levying interest from capital is a sin, the workers have a right to revolt against social order as it exists. It is in vain to tell them that they ought to have recourse to legal and pacific means. It would be a hypocritical recommendation. When, on the one side, there is a strong man, poor, and a victim of robbery, on the other a weak man, but rich and a robber, it is singular enough that we should say to the former, with a hope of persuading him, wait till your oppressor voluntarily renounces oppression, or till it shall cease of itself. This cannot be, and those who tell us that capital is by nature unproductive ought to know that they are provoking a terrible and immediate struggle. If, on the contrary, the interest of capital is natural, lawful, consistent with a general good, as favorable to the borrower as to the lender, the economists who deny it, the tribunes who traffic in this pretended social wound, are leading the workmen into a senseless and unjust struggle, which can have no other issue than the misfortune of all. In fact, they are arming labor against capital. So much the better if these two powers are really antagonistic, and may the struggle soon be ended. But if they are in harmony, the struggle is the greatest evil which can be inflicted on society. You see, then, workmen, that there is not a more important question than this. Is the interest of capital lawful or not? In the former case, you must immediately renounce the struggle to which you are being urged. In the second, you must carry it on bravely, and to the end. Productiveness of capital, perpetuity of interest. These are difficult questions. I must endeavor to make myself clear. And for that purpose I shall have recourse to example rather than to demonstration. Or rather, I shall place the demonstration in the example. I begin by acknowledging that, at first sight, it may appear strange that capital should pretend to a remuneration and above all, to a perpetual remuneration. 